this is Hilary Johnson from the Australasian Society for Intellectual Disability. Today we have a podcast on health, how to promote good health and optimise the healthcare of people with an intellectual disability. We have two speakers, the first one being Professor Nick Lennox and the second one being Dr Jane Tracy. Nick is going to talk to you about health in the first section. He is a director at the University of Queensland Centre for Intellectual and Developmental Disability based at the University of Queensland. He's a researcher, educator, advocate and clinician and has specialised in the health of adults with intellectual disability since 1992. He is also a fellow of the Australasian Society for Intellectual Disability. So what we talked about today was essentially about the health of people with intellectual disability and the deficits in healthcare. Primarily, we know that this population die up to 20 years younger than the rest of the population and have lots of unrecognised or, and or poorly managed disease. And we covered that material and then went specifically and looked at the specific conditions that, that are often missed and not managed well in this population. And these include things that cause physical pain, such as fractures or severe constipation, things that are specifically around psychological pain. There's high levels of unrecognised and poorly managed mental health problems from depression to psychosis to post-traumatic stress disorder. More specifically, the other things that are often overlooked is the overuse and poor review of medication the inadequate pickup and management of epilepsy and also the epileptic drugs not reviewed and not thought about in any depth and that definitely needs to occur. Epilepsy is particularly important because it has six times increase in mortality if somebody has epilepsy along with intellectual disability. One of the other major issues we talked briefly about was the use of psychotropic medication which some surveys suggested up to 40% of people are on and by this we I specifically mean medications like risperidone or drugs that are related to it. Over-medication is a major problem and again is reliant on others and yourself to actually review. Things like inadequate health promotion, disease prevention, there's a whole list of them, um, problems with lack of uh, vision screening, osteoporosis. So there's a whole bunch of things that people have that are poorly managed. So we talked about those and then thought about how we can augment the capacity of the healthcare system to address these needs essentially and decrease the barriers. So how do we improve access? How do we make sure that the person's health story travels with them and is available to a health practitioner? How do we make that all work together and integrate with each other? And, and of course we're working across two big systems, health and disability. And I guess at the core of this, the approach is to augment the capacity of people with intellectual disabilities and those that support them. And I prefer to say those that actually love them, even though that's not a politically correct thing to say, because they're motivated to actually drive change along with the person. There's lots of different ways of doing this, and some of it is, is having a clear and concise history to understand the needs of the health practitioner and to actually support them because believe it or not they often are disempowered in this context. Some of the kind of structured approaches that people will know about are health assessments and I talked about the CHAP work because that's the work that we've been doing and I know is implemented widely in Victoria and elsewhere and getting a kind of a set health review. So we've talked about that and there's plenty of detail about that on the web 
I guess specifically if you go to the UniQuest site where the eShop is for the chap, there's actually a video of me talking about that in more detail. And the other processes that are now available, such as a management plan that GPs can be paid to do, mental health plan, there can be funding for them to actually collaborate as part of a multidisciplinary team. And finally, there's a particular Medicare item for pharmacists to do pharmacy review that GPs can refer off to, which I think is quite useful. So there's some of the specific things. There's some things as a support person that you must do. You must have kind of a clear and consistent information because it's almost impossible for whether a medical practitioners or any other clinician to actually make sense of a story and the story of the person's health or their current journey in relation to the whatever illness is the way we arrive at diagnosis. So be absolutely sure that you've got that as clear as possible with as much kind of concrete detail. So they're just some of the suggestions and the things we talked about. If you want a copy of notes, those are available to you. I'd like now to introduce you to Dr. Jane Tracy. Jane is the Director of the Centre for Developmental Disability Health, Monash University. She's a medical practitioner who has worked for over 25 years with people with disability and their families. She has a passion for health, professional education, both at a student and practitioner level, and believes this is an essential strategy in improving the quality of healthcare. She also has an adult son with an intellectual and severe communication disability and brings both a professional and personal understanding to the area. My role at the moment is to head up the Centre for Developmental Disability Health at Monash Health. I've worked at the centre for about 25 years now. Prior to moving to Monash Health, we were at Monash Uni for many years. And the move to Monash Health, which happened nearly two years ago now, has provided us with a whole new set of opportunities to influence the health care of adults with intellectual disability. The mission of our centre is to improve health outcomes for adults with intellectual and associated developmental disabilities by developing and supporting the capacity of generic mainstream health services to better meet their needs. Our work includes educational activities, clinical initiatives, advocacy activities, and some innovation and service improvement activities. We seek to work in collaboration with people with disabilities and their families, and many of our educational activities involve people with lived experience of disability either family members or people with disabilities themselves. One of my favourite teaching sessions is one in which we employ people with intellectual disabilities as tutors for our medical students and it provides a fabulous opportunity for medical students to hear firsthand some of the issues that people with intellectual disability and communication impairments experience when they go to health services. It also provides a fabulous opportunity for those young people with intellectual disabilities to contribute to the training of future doctors and to advocate for themselves and um, speak up for themselves in expressing their ideas and their issues that are important to them. So why focus on health as part of caring for people with disability? Well. 
it's because we know that people with intellectual disability have poor out health outcomes when compared to the general population. They experience quite significant health inequity with increased risk of premature death and many of those deaths are preventable and the premature deaths lead to people with disability dying earlier and we need to work hard to make sure that our health services are accessible and provide high quality care for people with intellectual disability to address those health inequities. We know that people with disability often have complex health issues that are chronic long-term problems. Um, they might include things like epilepsy, they might include um, dental disease, difficulty swallowing, bowel issues are very common with constipation causing quite a lot of distress for many people. Many people, particularly those with cerebral palsy, have uh, reflux disease, difficulty with chewing and swallowing. There can also be associated skin disease and breakdown with ulcers that relate to pressure points or to areas of skin that are rubbing together because of tight muscles. Because people often have difficulty expressing themselves and describing their symptoms, many of their health conditions go unrecognised and untreated or undertreated. Those of particular concern include dental health and oral health and mental health issues that in general rely on people being able to express and describe their internal experiences of their life and those things are very difficult to access when people don't use words to communicate. People with disability often have less opportunities to access health education and health promotion interventions in our community because perhaps of physical access, of health literacy, of knowledge of where to access those and perhaps the information not being provided in an accessible fashion. And people likewise miss out on uh, preventive health initiatives like cancer screening and we need to be particularly aware and vigilant about ensuring that people with intellectual disability have the same access to cancer screening as the rest of the population. The kind of barriers that people face when encountering healthcare systems include the extra time that people need to have an assessment, the knowledge and skills of the person concerned, their family or their support staff, and indeed of the health professionals themselves. The physical access to the environment, both to the consultation and within the consultation, simple things like it might be really hard for somebody who's not able to wait bear to get on an examination couch if there isn't a hoist available. And then there are the communication issues and the attitudes and assumptions of health professionals. So there are lots and lots of barriers to people accessing care and we need to work as a healthcare team to ensure that people access the care they need. And that healthcare team must include the person themselves, their family, their support staff, as well as the health professionals who work with them. We're a triangulated sort of care network with the person, 
their, those who support them in the daily life and their health professionals all needing to bring together their own perspectives and their own knowledge and experience um, to achieve the best outcome for the person concerned. One of the things that's important for support staff to be aware of is the way in which doctors make a diagnosis. It tends to be by recognising patterns and when those patterns are made apparent through the history, through, through the story of the person's illness or their experience, uh, and then they might be confirmed by their findings in examination and on investigations. If someone isn't able to give their own history, that pattern is less clear and the pieces of the puzzle are missing. And that's why it's even more important that those supporting the person observe carefully the changes in that person that have led to the concern about the health issue and describe those changes clearly to the doctor. Recording of baseline behaviour and changes in that behaviour are also very important and that recording is also important once an intervention has been put in place whether that perhaps is starting on medication looking at the baseline and then how that's changed with the intervention can indicate whether that's been successful or not. One of the important points that we were discussing today in the session was behaviour as a form of communication and particularly changing behaviour. So that when somebody's behaviour changes, it's, it's a, an indication of a change in that person's experience of the world. Now that can be the experience of the external world, so it might be something that that person is find, finding distressing in their environment or it could be their internal world, the, their experience, they might have pain or discomfort or nausea, or they might have a mental illness, feeling anxious, feeling depressed, or indeed psychotic. So that we need to always be thinking of um, when somebody's behavior changes, could this be related to a physical health issue? Could this be a mental health issue? Could there be sensory issues going on here? Is it somebody's particular sensitivity to sound or light or smell or taste? Or could it be somebody's sensory ability has decreased so they're developing an impairment of their hearing or vision and that's changed the way in which they're experiencing their world? Or could it be a change in their environment? Something's changed in their family or in their support network Maybe they've lost somebody important to them. And we know that this population of people have a greater experience of loss and grief than the general population. There are people coming and going from their lives and often those are experienced as, as losses that lead to grief because um, people have a, a narrower circle of people that engage with them and are more um, vulnerable perhaps to experiencing grief at the loss of very important people in their life. They also have um, fewer coping mechanisms. Those of us who don't have an intellectual disability use various coping mechanisms when we are under psychological stress. We might use humour, we might rationalise, we might 
intellectualise what's going on for us. We might talk about it with our friends, we might uh, read something, other people's experiences, and from those different strategies uh, draw some resilience to cope with the stress that's happening to us. But for people with intellectual disability, they might not have some of those strategies available to them. And they also have a biological vulnerability to disorders of mental health that relates to the difference in the way that their brain is developed or is functioning. Just in the same way that they have a higher risk of developing epilepsy, so they have a higher risk of developing disorders of mental health. And the other factor there is the social factors, so there are biopsychosocial risk factors and the social ones relate to the lack of connectedness, the lack of social networks, the stigma, the prejudice that people experience, the exclusion that people experience. So there's lots of vulnerabilities that people have to disorders of mental health. One of the other topics we talked about today was making the most of a GP appointment and how there are factors that you can take into account that prepare somebody for the appointment there are things that you can do during the appointment that can improve the outcome and there are things that you can do after the appointment to make sure that that appointment has the best outcome for the person concerned. The kind of things before the appointment might be to consider the best time for the person. Are there times when um, the person is um, more alert. Some people, for instance, have more seizures in the morning, so that might not be the best time for them to go. It might be better in the afternoon. They might not like waiting, so perhaps it's best to make an appointment the first one after lunch or the first one in the morning so that there's minimise the waiting time. Think about who, which staff might best be there to support the person, somebody who knows that person well. Making a long appointment takes the pressure off both the person concerned, those who are supporting them, and indeed for the GP, so making a long appointment and preparing the information going along with the summary of what you're concerned about, what, why you're going to the GP, what it is that is the issue that you want the GP's input into, taking the medical information about the person, taking a medical summary, taking the health file. And then thinking about the person themselves, what's helped them in previous visits to feel relaxed and to engage as much as possible perhaps using photos to prepare for the doctor's appointment, encouraging them to take a favourite object and of course to take their communication aid or device. Make sure that you've informed the people who need to know, in particular the medical decision maker, that an appointment is coming up in case there's something that's going to require a formal consent. During the appointment think about where to wait. Is there a good place to wait? Some people are happy waiting in the waiting room. Some people might prefer to wait in the car and to be rung when it's time for them to go in. When you go into the consultation, make sure the person with the disability sits closest to the doctor in that key seat to emphasise the fact that they're the person around whom the consultation is to happen. Model communication with the person so that you encourage the direct communication between the doctor and the person concerned as much as possible introduce the person and encourage their participation, state your concerns and ask questions along the way. At the end of the appointment you can 
ask for a written summary, and it's a good idea to write, ask for a written summary of what's happened, and make sure you understand why any suggestions have been made, and in particular, why medication's been prescribed and the possible side effects. After the appointment, think about what went well and could, what could have been better. How could it improve for next time around? Make a review appointment and put it in the diary. That creates a feedback loop so that the doctor will find out whether that intervention has worked effectively and can look out for any um, adverse effects. Share the information with those who need to know, so other members of the household, the staff working in that household, perhaps the person's family if that's relevant, and make sure you're monitoring for expected response and for side effects, and return to the doctor if you're concerned. One of the very important things about working with providing care to people with a disability is making sure that we're always on the front foot. We're not always reacting to things going wrong. We're thinking instead, as medical practitioners now, how can I improve the health of this person, the health and well-being and functioning of this person? And one of the key ways of doing that is having an annual health assessment so that the, um, the person's health can be looked at in a holistic way, health promotion activities, disease prevention activities can be included and out of the health assessment can come a GP management plan and out of the GP management plan can come the development of a team care arrangement involving allied health professionals. No one health professional can meet the needs of somebody with complex health needs. We need to work in that healthcare team and proactive healthcare enables us to make the best use of that team. One of the other aspects that we highlighted today was the importance of knowing the cause of the disability. As genetics is changing so fast, we're more and more frequently able to identify a cause of somebody's intellectual disability. And that's really important because it tells the person concerned and their family about when and why that disability occurred, but it also informs medical care. For instance, if we know that if somebody has Down syndrome, they're more likely to have some problems with their thyroid during their life. And so we need to regularly check every year at least to make sure their thyroid is functioning normally. We know that people are more likely to have difficulties with their hearing and vision and so that, again, needs to be regularly checked throughout their life, so it informs our medical care. There are other causes of developmental disability, of course, and, and they might include infection or toxins, such as fetal alcohol syndrome or trauma, traumatic head injuries. Many of those we can't do anything about, but to know the cause is to inform the family and the person concerned about what those conditions, the, the, the cause of those conditions and knowing the cause in turn helps people access information that is available around that particular condition and I guess that applies particularly to the genetic conditions. So in summary really healthcare is a partnership and we need to work together to ensure the best health and lives for people with a disability. We highlighted a whole lot of resources in the session today and I guess we can put some of those on the ACID website. 
and thank you for the opportunity for contributing to this podcast. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode, which will be by Dr. Lisa Hamilton from La Trobe University. She will be talking about group homes. If you'd like to know more about the Australasian Society for Intellectual Disability, please follow us on Facebook or Twitter, or you can go to our website on www.acid.asn.au. Thank you to the producers, Sophia Tipping and Buffy Gorilla. See you soon.